Welcome to Pals with Bill Wadman, episode 14. Today we have Michael Kaup here, who uh, is a is the husband of a good friend of mine. And we've met a handful of times. I think it was your engagement party before you guys left. Wasn't that like up near the oh, uh, Natural History Museum? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I was there. Now, how, wait, how long have you been married now? Uh, we've been married for, it'll be four years as of this thursday september 20th oh really yeah so you're right, right up on it now yep H- how has four years of marriage been pretty, pretty uh, cool? four years is good yeah. uh we've done a lot in those four years uh within a year Calif- we Cal- moved colorado. out to boulder that's yeah. right uh in colorado um we're out there for three years or i was going to grad school uh earning an ma in religious studies uh studying sanskrit and tibetan language along with that um, and during that time, Annie was flying back and forth between New York City uh, and Boulder, along with trips to Idaho and Africa and all yeah. over. While you're sitting there reading Sanskrit, she's <laughs> flying around the world doing that kind of stuff. That's right. That must have been exciting. Uh, it was. Absolutely. You're, you're, you're going deeper into the mind and she's going deeper into the world at the same time <laughs> simultaneously. Right. They are both very broad and in-depth explorations. Yeah. That's for sure. So the reason I thought it would be fun for you and I to speak is that uh, you have your master's in, in comparative religion, did you say? In religious studies. Religious studies. Okay. Um, were you were you always a religious person? Like growing up, were you religious? It was always very present uh, in my life. Uh, my parents, uh, Catholicism is very important to both of them. Okay. Uh, and so that was expressed as a strong value to me. Um, so I was always in an environment where it was a powerful presence. Yeah. Yeah. Did you go to church and stuff when you were a kid then? That's right. CCD, yeah. CCD, the whole I grew up in a, going to a, uh, a Catholic grade school, uh, eventually yeah. switched to the public school system um, you know, we were in mass every Sunday, so I kind of had a had that that was a particular regiment that yeah. uh, that we undertook. Yeah, and and so was was there a point at which you you started questioning it being Catholicism as the only answer, and that there are other things out there? Do you remember a point at which your mind kind of had this kernel of something? Yes, um, there was a lot going on. I mean, I remember, recall being in middle school. Um, there's a lot of different influences. Some of that was just how do we explain and understand the world? So a lot of that was just science uh, in just that there were different ways of knowing that felt more specific and could be talked about um, more so that we could engage this as kind of an inquiry and a study uh, and then kind of find and make conclusions or even provisional conclusions about it. Um, So I think that kind of exploratory process of being able to kind of look into something, you know, make a hypothesis, um, kind of test it and see how does this work? What does this reveal? Or, you know, or, uh, or does something, something else going on here? Yeah. Um, So I think that was a strong influence. Uh, I had a a friend who simply, you know, in uh, at a young age, he was kind of a uh, a vocal atheist. Sure. Um, and to my young mind, that was kind of what was most shocking was just seeing someone, seeing someone just assert in, in this kind of perhaps contrary way, but really, 
uh, exerting their own volition, that sure. it was their choice uh, in a very specific one. Um, so I think I recall being quite surprised that, oh, you can do that yeah. or you can, um, yeah. And that, you were, you're a little bit younger than me, I think. You're what, early, mid-30s? I'm 33. 33. So you're a baby. Uh, so this was like mid-90s that, that like... That's right. Which, you know, all of the Dawkins stuff and the Christopher Hitchens and all that stuff hadn't This wasn't exploded, public. This right? wasn't, yeah. Yeah, no uh, one was I mean, talking about atheism in an in a open way like that or in an uh, aggressive, perhaps, way. That's right. At the time, yeah. Where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Stillwater, Minnesota. Stillwater, Minnesota. Is it cold yep. in Stillwater, Minnesota? It is cold in Stillwater, <laughs> Minnesota. <laughs> How many people in that town? There, you know, I'm not sure about Stillwater. There, that's my my postal address. Um, oh, it's one of those kind of places. <laughs> that's yeah. right. So Who where I grew where up, I actually live? we had Stillwater Post Office and White Bear Phone and Matamidi School District. Really? Uh, but the kind of the little suburban areas were probably each about twenty five thousand. Oh, okay. Uh, but this was part of the greater metropolitan area of Minneapolis, St. Paul. Sure. Right. Uh, and so did you go into town a lot and go see shows and all that kind of stuff? Were you there yeah, we got to, you know, go into the Ordway in St. Paul to see uh, the Phantom of the Opera. Sure, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, You know, to see traveling shows. Yeah, um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and for a long time, you were interested in acting, right? That's where you kind of got started? That's right. Um, before... Before I was interested in acting, I had wanted to be an aeronautical engineer. Sure. Um, and then... Didn't we all? <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I want to be an electrical engineer, but yes, go ahead. <laughs> Uh, it took time, like, in doing performance for the thought to occur to me that I could do it as a job. Right. Um, like, I did it for fun. I enjoyed it. Um, and I was having enough success uh, in feeling good enough about it that I saw that, oh, I could do this for fun and perhaps as a career. Right. Uh, so I have, a, I have a BFA in musical theater. Um, oh, I got theater. into fairly into stage combat. Um, I got to sword fight at the Metropolitan Opera in Il Trovatore uh, here in New York City. Was that exciting? Uh, that was so exciting. There's a lot of people um, fit in the Metropolitan Opera House. Yeah. Uh, a huge, huge number of audience participants. It's a huge stage. Right. Uh, right. And being on stage is also the best seat in the house. Like hearing oh, Dmitry Voratovsky, like, you know, he's giving his aria five feet away from me. Right, right, right. <laughs> Do you think the people who know stage fighting well actually have any fighting skills in the real world? They're totally different. Yeah, right. It's like they're <laughs> stayed. I often talk about this because in, in a regular fight, one, like you're actually trying to hurt someone. Two, um, you don't want to show what you're doing. Right. You're trying to be subtle and as little as possible so that your opponent has no idea what's happening. Yeah. Like in stage combat, you are telling a story through movement that is expressing violence. Right. Uh, and you want that story to be told. So All it's actually really clear. Exactly. Yeah. You're seeing that fist pull back. So there's that moment of tension, like, you know, see yeah. before well, it's go, it's about uh, to go seeing on. what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> yeah. So you were, you were doing the stage fighting. You did musical theater. I, I myself have a degree in music from Berkeley college in Boston, mm. which I don't really use all that often. 
Do you feel like now that you've moved on from that in some sense that 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 was a useful education to have in the rest of your life? And again, I don't mean that necessarily as a bad thing. I'm I'm genuinely yeah, wondering. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, My wife has a psychology degree, but you know, works in law. You know, for her psychology, she uses it all the time, even yeah. though she's not a psychologist. Yeah, uh, I definitely feel it's incredibly useful. Uh, it's not always practical from a credential standpoint yeah. for for various forms of employment, um, but you know, acting training performance. Um, for me, it became really its own contemplative practice. I was really interested in, you know, taking up a character and just understanding how do they see the world and under what circumstances give rise to this kind of behavior and this yeah. way of seeing things. Um, and especially in musicals, I particularly enjoyed playing villains. Um, but I always really enjoyed examining under what circumstances does this view make sense? Right. Um, because people, they don't go around doing what they do because it's incoherent or right. because like for sure. their perspective, they're doing what makes the most sense. Yeah. Um, so how is it that things that make so little sense to an outside observer become the answer for that person right. in that moment. And in some ways, so many stories and so much of theater is about how the characters are experiencing life and the meaning of life and, and the meaning of relationships and the meaning of, you know, the, 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 the why questions, you know, which is so much of what religion and spirituality are also trying to accomplish. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so where did where did you find where where did Buddhism come into the story? Buddhism came into the story uh, just after I moved to New York City uh, for the first time. Before then, I had been reading a fair amount of philosophy. Uh, Ken Wilber was a particular inspiration. He's kind of a contemporary philosopher, psychologist, you know, with kind of a, a slight New Age edge. Um, in some ways, I hesitate to use that term, but it's slightly useful. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of his writings, he was really kind of speaking to what I saw as an experiential wisdom. Yeah. Um, I was reading these expressions and people who were writing, and it was clear that this was coming from an experience that I felt that I wasn't going to get from just reading books. Um, I wanted to do something. I wanted to understand something in this kind of more uh, integrated, you know, embodied way that yeah. I was reading about. Um, and so when I got to New York City, uh, I had scoped out. The first thing I actually went to was uh, the Zen Center of New York City uh, in Brooklyn. Um, and I was definitely intrigued right away, uh, but it wasn't an immediate oh, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I want. But um, you were seeking I've it out been... specifically then. Yeah. 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 And 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 did, did that initial feeling of, uh, you know, that, oh, this didn't, it didn't initial, it didn't click instantly. Was that a matter of the way they were presenting it or how you were coming at it? You know, can you look at it now and say, oh, they, they just were, the, you know, the way they were speaking did not speak to me. Or was it just, I wasn't ready to hear what they were saying? Some of it was that it was a fair bit different than one of my strong influences. I was reading a lot of Advaita Vedanta. This is a non-dual uh, school of Hinduism um, that really emphasized 
uh, God and Brahman as the absolute reality, like, you know, and this kind of searching for an understanding of an experience of Atman, like seeing uh, one's true self. Uh, and so in Vedanta, uh, there's this clear presentation that that this self, like the small self, is illusory, and then ultimate reality, like the big self or the real self, is uh, kind of the reality behind, you know, this seeming appearance. Yeah. Um, and in Buddhism, uh, you know, the, the early Buddhist teachings are very, are describe all phenomenon with three marks. They describe it as being marked by impermanence, by being marked by suffering or unsatisfactoriness, yes. uh, the Sanskrit is dukkha, yeah. um, and by non-self, um, which in later Mahayana schools, this gets described uh, as emptiness or as the uh, the inherent unfixed nature um, right. of all phenomenon. Uh, so the difference here and kind of the contrast was looking for something that was kind of going to offer the ultimate insubstantiality, right. like of who or what like I was or like life is. Yeah. Um, and in Buddhism, it's, it's really there to pull the rug out and say, nothing is like that. Right. And to, to your, your ideas for that to for it is a waste of time. Well, that the ideas that we have trying to satisfy uh, these needs will only disappoint um you know and this is this is why there's so much talk of life is suffering or or is, sure, yeah. is dukkha um and it's not that that's the end of that story uh it's not that there's not joy and great fulfillment um but that's uh, these kind of two very opposed views yeah and if, and if, and if you're not aware of all of this you will end up spending too much time trying to find happiness and impermanence that, 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 that the idea that everything is constantly changing yeah. and you're trying to find a solid thing in something that's constantly changing. And that's something to hold on to yeah. or that a thing that, Oh, when I get this job or when this thing happens, then, you know, then life will be okay. Right. right. Uh, and it's not that those things don't have, a huge impact on our on our lives. Uh, they absolutely do. But from a Buddhist standpoint, it's that the satisfaction they provide is temporary. Yes. Is yeah. fleeting. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. have uh, any power to, in this constant enduring way, they're, they're continue event, to satisfy. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So as, I'm going to give you the cliff notes as I understand it. Yes. Somewhere around 600 years BC, a guy was born. Some people say to a king and a queen. Some people say he was just a commoner from what I've read. Like no one really knows his origins, Buddha, that, that, that there are questions over who he was in society initially. Is that untrue? The tradition says that uh, he was the son of kind of a local king yeah. um, in northern India. Right, right. Um, as far as, like, history goes, uh, 
people often uh, interrogate, and rightly so, the origins, yeah. uh, a lot of these founding figures of religions. Sure, and- I, I, just, I just find it interesting from a, from a Wikipedia level, kind of like, oh, that's interesting, it's 2,500 years, of course we don't know exactly what it is, but there's later, of course, men and women, probably a lot of men, added some mythology to it all just because that's what people tend to do. That's right. With, with histories. We make stories uh, right. and sometimes they serve a historic purpose. Exactly. And sometimes they serve uh, the An purpose of a religious purpose. teaching. Sure. Right. Right. Uh, so he, he found life unsatisfying in, it, it, to, to some extent and wanted to figure out why this was true. Is this all wrong or Am I somewhat? No, this is a nice summary. Okay. I'm Um, I'm just trying to understand what I, what I know just so I know where I need to fill in. Yeah. Uh, his father, as, as the legend is told, uh, his father was given a prophecy that his son Siddhartha would either become, uh, a great, a great king or a great religious ascetic. Okay. Uh, and in wanting his son to be this great king, uh, he sought to shelter Siddhartha uh, in uh, the royal compound okay. um, and lived very much a life of incredible luxury for the time. Right. Um, and there was an occasion where Siddhartha got out of the compound and he encountered um, an old person, a person who was sick, uh, and a person who was dead. Okay. Um, and this, it was this experience that, at least as uh, as the narrative goes, uh, that prompted his search and his interest in seeing that, oh, like, you know, these, the luxuries of the palace are, you know, will not fundamentally satisfy uh, life, you yeah. know. And aren't going to change the fact that eventually I will probably get sick and I will die. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, these inevitabilities, right? That's right. Yeah. And there's, there's a certain level of, it was interesting. I was reading yesterday, I guess it was because there is a, there is a sort of reincarnation theory in Buddhism that, that, you know, everything's cyclical, right? Yeah. But that the sort of Western standard sort of uh Judeo Christian notion of a soul that I am going from here and then I die and I pop into I, I sort of respawn in the, in the in a gaming yeah. way yeah. into some other being is not the way that Buddhists see the idea of reincarnation. Well, the, the idea of a soul doesn't exist in the same way. Well, it's not in Buddhism. It's not the soul that transmigrates. Okay, um, would be would be a, an often used term or a, a translation of of what the terms are. Um, it, it, reincarnation was certainly a view of the time. Um, you know, and it has a place in the Buddhist tradition. Uh, if you ask different, you know, 21st century American Buddhists or even Buddhists in other, you know, outside of America as well, you'll hear a range of views and understanding. Uh, for some, it's very much, um, it very much is, you know, just kind of like as you described, like, you know, there is our experience of this life. And then when we die, there's uh, there's the bardo or the intermediate state where yeah. in one uh, there, you know, they're kind of continued karmic stream, uh, which uh, it's the tradition would say that it's really the grasping and the seeking, the desire for existence, uh, which carries the mind stream uh, and its karma to its next life, like choosing parents and being born again and going through uh, this whole cycle of samsara once more. 
um in in some buddhist traditions um and in zen uh zen buddhism of which i'm a practitioner it is more my own stance is understanding rebirth as kind of the as simply as from moment to moment there's one question of how we go from one life to the next or if that you know is that how all of this works uh but also the simplicity of how one moment gives rise to another and who are we in these different moments am i the same person that i was you know a moment ago or yesterday or 10 years or at one point am i different or um so in this sense this kind of in every moment uh being like dis uh destroyed you know reborn and arisen in existent for you know a glimmer like right. as just this you know yeah. sequence of events yeah so so it's 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 rebirth in some infinite number of moments even within a life and 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 how you exist within the the single life that you have and how you change through that exactly yeah did, did yeah and as a personal view uh i you know, kind of going back to the kind of scientific MO of hypothesizing based upon what I experience and what I can see and what I can observe. You know, I I have trust in this kind of sense of reincarnation from moment to moment or examining these teachings in this light. I don't specifically discount or shy away from uh, this transmigration from life to life. Uh, but without, you know, I haven't seen it. Yeah, there's, I there's, haven't directly And there's no way to prove, it. there's no so way, it's, like it's, yeah. Exactly. That's almost a faith, so, a matter of faith. Yeah. yeah. So for me, it's one of those things that that aspect of it doesn't play uh, a very important role in the practice for me. Yeah, yeah. Do people within Buddhism, of course, there's respect for the person who was the Buddha. Yeah. But it is different than some other religions where that person is worshiped is that is that fair or is that unfair is it, you know it, it's i don't quite understand um the 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 pedestal at which people hold them up do they hold them up as wow he was a really bright guy who figured this out and told people about it or is it he was special in some sort of uh uh, uh supernatural way it's Does a great question yeah absolutely um the tradition is largely clear that the Buddha was a human being, mm-hmm. was a person, uh, and it's important within you know with how the whole tradition kind of works is that as a human being, you know he you know attained enlightenment and nirvana, like extinguished his his suffering and all hindrances, yeah. uh, and that this is possible that this liberation is possible from within a human life. Because um, at the time, that's kind of what all these ascetic practitioners were searching for, was right. liberation from samsara. Um, so in that sense, it's important in tradition that he's an ordinary human. Do you think he actually accomplished that? In your head, do you think he accomplished that? Or is that a is that a momentary thing? Or is that a, once I pass some threshold, I'm therefore in that zone for the rest of my experience? Or is that a, <laughs> oh, I was sitting here and I found some sense of peace and I understood my place and how this all fits together. But of course, circumstances are going to come that are going to knock me out of this superposition that I'm in momentarily. You see what I'm trying to get at? Yeah. 
Uh, for me, I definitely regard the Buddha as having accomplished what he is said to have accomplished. Okay, all right. Uh, to have the insight that and understanding of human experience that yeah. that it's spoken of. Um, at the same time, in Zen, uh, in spe- in my own lineage of which is kind of a, a Soto Rinzai hybrid uh, school, uh, meaning there are a couple pr- primary Japanese schools of Zen and in my practice were kind of descended from both. Um, but in the Soto school, the are kind of next most important teacher's name is Eihei Dogen. Um, and he was a, a Zen master of about of 1200. He was born and died in 1253. Um, so this is when Buddhism came his, over to Japan from, from, from China Nepal. in this yeah. case. Uh, yeah. Okay. Is where, so from where India Dogen over Nepal to China and then over to Japan eventually. That uh, that's right. Thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and his emphasis is both on that practice and enlightenment are one, uh, and that in enlightenment, one never ceases practice. He, uh, he often speaks of, you know, enlightenment or as, you know, the, the attainment or the goal of it is actually living in a manner that is constant practice. Yeah. Uh, so in this sense, there's this understanding or there's this teaching or opportunity to look at things as well. It really raises the question of what the what does one think enlightenment is? Well, exa- what do you think is yeah, going to happen? Yeah, like yeah. what? Um, do you think there's going to be some spark and the, the skies are going to open and like you're going to have, or is it just sort of the by searching for it you have somehow found it? You know what I mean? Like, I, okay, for example, I, I'm a photographer. To me. I like the fact that there is a final product in what I do in the sense that I have this thing that I've worked at. Right. But to me, that is just sort of a, a relic. It's, 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 it's a, it's a physical embodiment of the experience I had making that thing. Hmm. Right. Yeah. But it's the making of the thing. It's like, you know, the, the journey is the goal kind of thing. I mean, I feel, it feels like that's sort of compatible with what you're trying to say. It's exactly that. Okay. That, that the path is the goal. This is, yeah. uh, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh has a book, you know, of this title. He's a Vietnamese Zen teacher. Uh, but these things, uh, these are expressed in exactly those terms, uh, often in Buddhism as well as Taoism, uh, which for Zen, there's a strong uh, a strong influence from Taoism in China as it was brought there. And this sure. is kind of Mixing some of, of what, all these traditions yeah. as it moved across they didn't exist just by themselves. They're influenced right. by the culture that they're in. Just same like is true of all the Western religions are the same thing. Yeah. In yeah. the way Buddhism is, you know, being practiced and understood and taken up in America right now. Right, 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 right. It seems like a lot of the things like if you. And here's where you may disagree with me. You speak of this very eloquently. You obviously are very learned. But I feel like there, there, you and I could discuss this thing, and you could give me examples of of where Buddhism has a philosophy, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, about how to live your life. That you could translate into a much more to a much more modern viewpoint and language yeah. that would be equally as effective as you know, uh, 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 and I don't mean this derogatorily at all a self-help book about yeah about how to how to view your life and how to take moments and and events in your life 
you know, uh, 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 take time with them. You know what I mean? And to understand them, to sort of have self-reflection, to be self-aware yeah. is, is, is a lot to do with it. So I guess my question is, what is the advantage of Buddhism specifically or Zen Buddhism in your case over trying to turn it into more modern philosophy with modern language? You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and one, like all of this range of kind of ways of encountering Buddhism, like as both, you know, a as a religious tradition or really as the kind of self-help thing or as a very secular thing. Yeah. I um, want to get like, into that too. So, yeah. uh, that's a big, that's a big thing. And there's a lot going on there. Uh, like John Kabat-Zinn and mindfulness-based stress reduction. He basically was trying to create a secular non-Buddhist Buddhism. Right. Um, but I say the, the biggest difference, uh, you know, one of my teachers in my graduate program, uh, Judith Simmer Brown, she's a professor of religious studies as well as a senior teacher um, in a Tibetan Buddhist lineage, uh, speaks of the difference between translative practice and transformative practice. Okay, explain uh, that. And what she means by this is that translative practice really being about how do I make this current situation okay or more workable? So this, uh, speaking of this as the kind of self-help orientation, you know, this is, I would describe this as kind of, you know, putting on a bandage or just, or, you know, healing, uh, expressing things in this kind of a modality. Um, but the goal is to, to make life easier and make this kind of work better and take better right. care of your relationships and things that are going on. And that has huge benefits yeah. and it's really important there's a guy listen who refers to things like that as a thought technology right? oh, okay it's like something we've come up with that you can use to yeah. affect the way you think and and can be useful to handle the world around you that's a nice phrase okay. and that's a nice umbrella term for a lot of things within that sure yeah okay um and this is somewhat different from uh, a transformative practice okay like what buddhism teaches or what it offers uh, and kind of points to is this direct insight into the nature of, you know, oneself and all phenomenon that, you know, that really transforms that so that one, um, you know, I'm, I'm not enlightened, so I can't, you know, no, so yeah, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah, some yeah. sense, uh, there's only so much I can say about that. But it's, it's really coming back to to this insight into phenomenon that then lives within you. So it's kind of that your understanding, your seeing of reality of what's before you is so clear that suffering no longer arises because, because suffering in the Buddhist tradition, one way of understanding that is how our ideas differ from our experience. Sure. But when our ideas and understanding of that are exactly reality, there's nothing, there's no longer any way for, you know, those kind of perturbations to arise. Right, right. It, you know, I mean, you've, you've studied Hinduism, you've studied Zen Buddhism, you've mm -hmm. studied Catholicism to some extent. I'm sure you've looked into... Some other things are yeah, in there too. Judaism <laughs> and, and, and Islam. And I'm sure there's, you, you have at least cursory knowledge of all these different things. I mean, it's similar to sort of a Western concept of like a state of grace, right? Like to, to like know God, to understand, like all this sort of stuff that people are, some people yearn for, right? Yeah. This, this understanding. I am not one of those people who yearns for it or does not necessarily believe that it actually exists. Yeah. You know? 
So for me, it's like, well, I can take what I can take out of religion from the point of view of, I think if Jesus existed, he was a bright philosopher who had some good things to say and people should love each other. I'm all on board with that. Do I believe that he was the son of God? No, personally, I do not. Right. So, but I think that within all sort of philosophy and religion, I think there are those, those kernels you can pull out, right. That are universal, but that there are certain people who, who maybe, uh, uh, desire. Desire is the wrong word. No, desire is the right word. word, I think. Yeah. Desire to understand something on a deeper level or, need to right i guess you know what i mean feel like they're not whole without having felt that that sort of like mystical next step up it's almost like all we human beings are different and there's no single answer for all of us but yeah there is but i feel like there is a (laughs) distinction between those people who think oh i'm i don't exist i'm nothing without this higher plane above me looking down on me in in some religious form or 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 i can't possibly understand the plane that i'm on unless i get to the plane above and can look down on and understand the plane below which is sort of i feel like maybe it's a bad translation of of what you were saying the second half of your description there Mm. but but you know there are those people who feel like they 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 that they're they're unwhole without that yeah you know there's a where do you fit into into all of that or your personal view? I mean, I want to... I want to understand reality and phenomenon directly. Okay. And with that clarity, be able to really do some good in this world and help others. Okay. Help them through their suffering and challenges, um, as well as... No, just that. Like, um, and that's really, so part of that is self-satisfying, like about my own inquiry and interest in uh, what is not yet clear or doesn't doesn't make sense. Um, and then part of, the, part of that or the application of that insight or wisdom is, is for others, is for living a good life with, you know, with, with people with yeah, those around you. Yeah. 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 So in this sense, um, the, the goal, like, you know, I, I've expressed some lofty language or kind of sure. spoken of it perhaps as, you know, uh, as a, as a higher plane or a thing like that. Um, but it really is about being able to, you know, to just live this life in yeah. kind of a, in a dignified and skillful way that, yeah. uh, where you can help people. Right. Um, you can help them because you are clear about what's going on. Yeah. You know, this is like a physician or like a doctor, any kind of, you know, someone we have to diagnose something correctly yeah. and understand it in order to be of help. Sure. In order to do something about that. Right. Um, and in that sense, the Buddha is sometimes called like the great physician um, but I definitely hold a similar view in regard to my own practice and own interest in, in doing this. Yeah. Yeah. You have a very calm way about you. Have you always been that way? Or is that a, a learned thing from years of thinking about Zen Buddhism in a certain way? People often describe me as, as being quite calm, uh, or, or very patient. Um, 
it's interesting because I don't always, I don't, you don't feel experience that way? <laughs> myself that way. It's like, you know, I can be roiling inside, like, and have such like fervor or, um, uh, negative so, passion or just passion in that case, like anger. Oh yeah. Okay. All okay. of it. I mean, you know, it, <laughs> He's like, I'm very it angry all can at come you up. right now. <laughs> <laughs> So in that sense, you know, I recall that that many others have, you know, have spoken of, oh, Michael's really patient, or he's really like he's he's really calm, or um But that's not but that isn't how you specifically it. that hasn't specifically been my experience. Uh and maybe like it's because maybe I have like kind of a baseline calmness or or kind of sensitivity wherein uh, wherein I really notice or feel those afflictions or anger or what have you right. um, more. I don't, that's one of the things that's uh, it's a bit more difficult yeah. to yeah. compare. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. Yeah. It's just because I, by the time I met you, you were already interested in Buddhism. Yeah. So I never knew you before. So I didn't know if there was like a certain level of, oh no, once he started studying this stuff, he changed the way he reacted to things just because he saw them as, he saw them as reactions, not mm. as reality. You know what I mean? Which I think yeah. is what a lot of self-awareness comes down on. You know, yeah. it's like you can feel emotions. Doesn't mean you have to respond to them or react to them or, you know, exactly. your body's going to do what it's going to do, but you can consciously choose not to react in that way. Yeah. To them. So there's yeah. both the, there's both the not grasping at what that experience is. Yeah. Hold, not holding on to it and allowing it to pass. Uh, which is really important for that non-reactivity. Sure. Uh, but then there's also the sensing and experiencing it vividly. Because with the the non-grasping, we can be really pushing away and trying to hide or get rid of uh, our own kind of yeah. tortured or challenging experience. And this doesn't help us either. Yeah. Um, there's a presentness, the be here now kind of That's right. Theory. Yeah. 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 Do you, do you, you meditate? Uh, I do uh, a lot. Uh, I meditate uh, about an hour a day, okay. uh, half hour in the morning, half hour in the evening. Okay. Do you time it that way, or do you sit down and and it generally ends up being about a half an hour? I time it pers- purposefully. Okay. Uh, and in my practice and tradition, it's quite important. Meaning, if for the time that I'm sitting, so when I set that timer, you know, until you know thirty minutes later, or however long I've set it for it means I'm there to really do that practice and let go of, of things that are coming up and just be there. Uh, without that as a kind of container, there's this question of like, oh, have I sat enough? Do I want to get up? Oh, like, see. you know, if there's so pain or if there's out of agitation. Exactly. Yeah. So in that sense, it is, uh, for me, it's like having that timer frees me to really do that practice while I'm doing it for that period of time. Um, so I definitely appreciate this relationship between commitment and freedom of that being clear about commitments empowers one to let go of the things that draw away from that and sure. really um, and really engage whatever that uh, that thing uh, person, moment, experience, yeah. what have you is, yeah. um, you know, yeah. it's also joyful <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like to I, really do what you're doing while you're doing it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, I, 
you know, there's, there's all kinds of historical stuff, right? There's the, you know, sort of flow states, you know, that, that sort of, you know, uh, some people will say that it's a certain beta waves in your brain. You know what I mean? Your brain sets into a certain setting or, you know, lost time, you know, if you're enjoying something, right? Like just the, 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 uh, relativity of, of just time and your experience of it, you know, you're doing something you want with somebody you want to be with and four hours goes by you're on the rowing machine for 20 minutes and you feel like it's been three days. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like there's, there's, it's, it's amazing how the brain can do that. Yeah. You know, um, there's a guy, you ever have a guy named Wim Hof? I have not. Okay. So there's this guy, he's Norwegian or, you know, I mean, I might be wrong. He might be Icelandic. Anyway, general Northern European kind of guy who's, whose nickname is the Iceman, Michael, because, <laughs> He's come up with, he's broken all kinds of world records, but those are not why he does what he does. It's just sort of like a demonstration of why he does what he does. And he came, he's come up with this sort of process by which he has this breathing exercise called the Wim Hof method. It's hyperventilating and holding your breath in iterative states and then exercising and then basically taking cold showers. This is his way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Now, he does all this from a scientific point of view. Yeah. You could say, well, you know, hyperoxygenating your blood does a certain thing. Your brain will react to that in a certain way. Endorphins. Getting in cold showers. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. So then he'll go do that and he'll go sit outside with nothing but underwear on for 30 minutes in the freezing cold, you know, yeah. on the ice or whatever it is, which is why he's called the ice man, because he's basically trained himself to not be impervious to pain, but to understand what pain is and being able to 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 use it right to 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 that point that's the way he's doing that i have a i have a very old friend who came over the other day who was just like i've been doing this wim hof breathing method thing right so my wife and i tried it the other day just to you know see what it's like for a few days and actually she's been doing it more than i have but there's this there's this idea that 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 we can use and uh uh well thought technologies like we were talking about before to change the way our brains work. And some could argue that, that that's what a lot of these different religions and and philosophies and things are, right? It's things that our brains will naturally do. If you spend 30 minutes quietly sitting and trying to, you know, your meditative process is very much sort of trying to empty your mind or thinking through things. Um, I would describe it in neither of those terms. Okay. Well, give um, me the, I, this is observing what arises. Okay. Like, and seeing it, yeah. seeing it clearly and letting it go, letting it go. Um, that's all of it. So usually the, the primary, um, object of meditation is the physical sensation of the breath. Yes. Um, you know, feeling it, you know, in some traditions, it'll be wherever you feel it vividly, um, you know, either the rise and fall of the belly or the nostrils. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, coming, yeah, bringing one's attention to that sensation, like, right. and then as one notices any, um, any of the senses being engaged, right. um, you know, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body right. consciousness, right. like, yeah. you know, the mind. Uh, that these things are then observed with clarity and let go of. Yeah. And that your brain is going to react to that thoughtfulness, mindfulness, I guess, in a way that when you're done, you have a sense of clarity. Uh, oh, oh, that, 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 that feeling in, during the meditation will extend beyond the end of meditation. 
into your day. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, and it's, it's not specifically about, about trying to continue or carry the feeling, um, or a feeling that's cultivated, but describing it in terms of a practice, you know, you are like, I am practicing it sitting on the cushion where it's easiest to do, you know, there's the fewest like stimulations and what have you, uh, so that I'm better at practicing it, you know, everywhere else. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, So that, you know, in our conversation or, you know, in talking with my wife or, you know, or, or at work. That you could be present here listening to what I'm saying and reacting to it in a way that is uh, mindful of the moments going by. That's right. And there's both a vividness to, to, uh, endeavoring to be really present to that, yeah. uh, and uh, and not trying to not hold on to anything. Yeah. Uh, Do you see it as a religion or a philosophy? Uh, I think that both are can be helpful ways of looking at it. Yeah. Um, you know, by its own definition, Buddhism is Buddha Dharma. It's a Dharma, um, and in you know, uh, five hundred. BCE, yeah. uh, India, like a Dharma, um, being a kind of life calling practice thing, you yeah. know, it's just a, it's a different category. Um, so it definitely has strong intersections, uh, with both of them. Um, and if you ask different Buddhists and different people, they will likely say possibly very different things. They're right, persons right. for whom, uh, they're really happy to describe it as a religion. I'm fine describing it as a religion. Right. I'm also fine describing it as a philosophy. Right, um, right. I very specifically study the Mahayana Buddhist philosophies from about 200 common era to like six or 700, uh, you know, in engage those as philosophic traditions. Right. right. Um, so for me, both of those are, uh, feel like, a genuine way for me to talk about my own understanding, yeah. the way that I engage this. Uh, but for some, it might be neither, you know, those who identify as like spiritual, but not religious, or, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different ways that people can identify um, and kind of engage uh, these practices and this yeah. tradition. Yeah. Some people will practice their entire lives and never reach enlightenment. True. Does that happen? Cause it's a, it's sort of a, it's a self only you can decide whether you've reached some sort of level of enlightenment. Somebody from the outside can't tell. Right. <laughs> so it's sort of self-reported in some ways. The, uh, from a Buddhist standpoint, you will never decide that you are enlightened. Okay, fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Well then, yeah, yeah. I, I, from, um, you know, that the question is kind of impossible, to, not impossible, but first we would have to define like specifically what enlightenment is. Yeah. And then under, and it would have to be a unified thing for like every person. Right. And then we would have to. So you think the definition assess, of enlightenment is different from person to person? Um, I would not assert a, an all encompassing definition of enlightenment. Okay. You know, I'm interested in studying how it is in my own tradition. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in studying, you know, and learning from my teacher um, what that is and how, you know, how best to uh, to aspire to it, um, to really living, understanding, and manifesting it. Um, but, you know, the similar. this is kind of a similar question to like, uh, you know, 
you referred earlier to the state of grace sure uh, or kind of you know uh, these kind of peak experiences and yeah. other religious traditions um and this raises the theological question of you know is there uh is there one peak or are there many peaks you yeah, know in terms sure. of you know is absolute truth one or is it multiple um and you know it, it's an interesting question in different some traditions assert a very particular claim, yeah. uh, like Vedanta would say, says truth is one. Sages call it variously. You know, uh, it's spoken of by many names, yeah. but it's you know it's a single thing. You yeah. know, exclusive. Bigger than any human or idea can encompass. Therefore, you may see it differently than I do, even though it's a single thing. Yeah, yeah. But one of my biggest questions is, how would you know? Yeah. Well, you'd have to. You know, you can ask people about their experience. You can try and understand the authenticity of what their understanding is, yeah. but how do you really compare yeah. that? And what, um, and then what is a person trying to do or accomplish or communicate by that comparison? Yeah. Uh, so like yeah. as a scholar of religion, I'm interested in the question and looking at ways that we can examine that. But as a practitioner, um, that it's not a question that interests me so much. Sure. Uh, well, I think that we as humans like the idea of goals, concrete goals, right? Like we, yeah. we like the idea that there's some definitive, definitive objective truth, even if that truth is supernatural or, or, you know what I mean? Uh, philosophical. Yeah. Right. Like I want to be able to define this thing so that I know when I get there of all the things that you've said today. And I, I don't disagree with, I, I agree with many of them from a, from a sort of agnostic point of view. Yeah. Um, the, the idea that, that, that the, 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 the journey is, is, is the goal is the most interesting to me. In some ways it feels like putting there, putting this state of grace and nirvana and understanding over here that you're trying to go towards is almost discounting the path towards it in some ways, right? You see what I'm saying? That, that like, why even have that if the actual goal is the process of trying to get to the goal? See, see what I'm trying to, trying to say? Yeah. And in some ways, it's just about what is helpful for a given person. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You know, they're, uh, you know, some Buddhist teachers really speak in like this big aspiration language, like, yeah. you know, really describing things as this great goal and cultivating, yeah. you know, great desire to accomplish like almost that. Almost like a classical preacher kind um, of thing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and in other traditions, uh, or even with, within a tradition, like, you know, teachers can respond to students in very different ways, like based sure. upon what it seems that they need. Um, you know, there's, in Buddhism, they speak of this as skillful means or upaya, uh, that, you know, suiting the teaching to the particularities of the person who's in front of you. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, to, and this comes back to that seeing clearly and being able to offer something that's of benefit to them, yeah. which may not be what someone else needs. Right, 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 right. If you go and speak to a Tibetan Buddhist now, Versus a, a Japanese Zen Buddhist yeah. versus an American Buddhist tradition. W will the Tibetan Buddhist say, you guys are hangers on. You're adding stuff onto what was fundamentally pure. 
you're messing it up. You're mixing it, watering it down. Is there, is there, are there, are there those kinds of internal battles between the philosophies underneath? Because it is not a uniform, it's not a, um, singular expression. Right. Buddhism. There's no single Buddhist Pope or yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. Uh, right. Common head of all Buddhist traditions. Yeah. That's right. Uh, you know, there are definitely, uh, uh, these kind of either disagreements or differences of opinion, um, you know, there are big questions about breadth and depth, you know, making the Buddhist tradition, uh, you know, and this comes back to like uh, John Kabat-Zinn and mindfulness-based stress reduction, his kind of secular Buddhism, uh, and he himself came from Zen practice, you know, his goal was to really make this as accessible as possible. He wanted to remove uh, kind of the religious language um, and there, so that's there's a lot of virtue in that, and that's it's a great thing. Um, but there must be some of the Buddhist practices who say you're taking the kernel of our stuff and removing everything that's sort of meaningful on a higher level. That's right. Yeah, there's okay. those who say like in that you know in trying to be broad that uh, that a lot of depth has been lost. Yeah. Uh, so there's definitely you know critiques between Buddhist traditions like uh, you know how what is what is their understanding? Do they, are they transmitting true Dharma um, or not? Or, you know, is it watered down or has the, the strength of the tradition uh, degraded? Um, You know, these are definitely all the stuff that ends up in every religion that's run by people. Yeah. Yeah. In every organization that's run by people, every, you know, we compare. (laughs) Is there ever any like racism in in all of that? Sort of just like, well, we came up with it here in India and like, how dare you Japanese? Is there any of that kind of stuff? Off the record even? Like, is there, there... you know, it's, I haven't researched it specifically. Yeah. So, um, uh, I mean, when we're involving human beings, uh, yeah. I would say All kinds of stuff we <laughs> are involving issues of bias, sure. you know, related to race, to gender. Uh, you know, in the United States, a big thing, um, uh, Edward Said was, I believe, the scholar who coined the term Orientalism. Sure. Uh, and he used this term to describe ways uh, that Westerners in particular kind of simultaneously elevate the orient as like having like this kind of profound wisdom or qualities yeah. like mystical that, thing that's older than our yeah, traditions yeah that we as westerners want and then also denigrate it like yeah. somehow like an infantize uh yeah, you yeah. know those cultures uh and so often there's this sense of like oh they have it but i'm the one who really understands yeah, yeah. it yeah, 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 yeah. um so in there's in there's definite racism in that Sure. Um, in how we, you know, how we meet with the other. Sure. Um, yeah, I'd imagine that there's got to be all of that in there. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, uh, so do you find yourself, do you find your experience of your own life is enriched by these practices and has that enrichment increased over time that you've been practicing? Uh, I would say yes. Okay. Yeah, my, you know, I once asked uh, a Dharma teacher, how do I know that I'm practicing well? Yeah. And he said to me, you'll know you're practicing well when you want to practice. 
and this was this was really powerful me for me um when when i'm really engaging practice and caring about it i want to do it more and consequently like you know life is better is clearer is um it's kind of like uh, another way of saying this is taking joy in that which is actually healthy and virtuous yeah yeah um and that that this is marked by well of course like you know wanting what is good uh and helpful for one's life circumstance is is good yeah um you know and it's it's very simple yeah. Um, and, and that's definitely, that's kind of my overall experience of it. Are there specific um, moral teachings in Buddhism that, that are there, are there do's and don'ts? Are there 10 commandments of, of Buddhism? I mean, yeah, there's the eightfold path and there's all this kind of stuff, but there are, uh, there are kind of three, uh, the tripitaka as it's called, there are three baskets of teachings. Okay. Um, there's the, uh, the sutras, uh, which are, uh, kind of stories uh, and kind of more narrative teachings that contain a variety of teachings. Uh, then there's the Abhidharma, the higher Dharma. This uh, is kind of a systematized philosophy. Uh, and then there's the Vinaya. Uh, these are the the moral and ethical precepts, uh, okay. which like in the time of the Buddha, this was the monastic code. Uh, so, you know, to this day, uh, current monastics, uh, you know, they'll have their uh, they're 227 or, you know, I forget, I'm not sure the number, and it varies by uh, lineage and tradition sure, of course. Uh, number of, of precepts. Um, in my own tr- tradition, we kind of practice the the precepts. Um, there are 16 that, uh, that a lay practitioner takes up. Um, three of these are first uh, taking refuge in the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Um, which is really committing to or wanting to take up these things in one's life. You know, one's the teacher, the teachings, and the community. Um, then there's uh, then there's cease from harm, practice good, and actualize good for others. Uh, these are called the three pure precepts. Right. Uh, and then kind of the ten that are uh, perhaps more similar to the Ten Commandments uh, are uh, precepts against uh, that one will not kill, steal, lie, misuse sexuality, uh, you know, take intoxicants, um, uh, refrain from falsehoods, uh, from elevating uh, oneself above others, uh, abstain from anger. um, All of which have gray areas. You know, just, you know, uh, you know, misusing anger. Well, the anger exists when, at what point is that misuse or, or even the sexuality stuff? Like at what point, you know, there are some serious Catholics who say you shouldn't have sex unless you're trying to make a baby, you know, like these kinds of things. So, I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, and in the, in, in my own tradition in, in Zen and in my lineage in which I practice, these are understood in a very vital way, in a way that uh, continues to question uh, them kind of in each moment. I mean, there's some certainty and clarity uh, in them as well. It's not relativistic, but there's an understanding that, that, these, that 
they are dependent upon circumstance. Yeah. Uh, and it's about what is appropriate and needed in the exact situation that one is in. Yeah. Uh, and this is, again, why the tradition emphasizes wisdom or seeing clearly so that one is not, you know, acting on the precepts in a deluded way or in a self, you know, we can justify, you know, so any of our behaviors, so yes, many behaviors. Yeah. In, it's been proven since time immemorial of, of, of lots of religious, you know. Exactly. Th- yeah. So this is why the contemplative practice, you know, observing the mind, watching what comes up, letting it go, uh, is is a fundamental part and practice along with the precepts the and these moral and ethical teachings yeah. uh, in terms of how we understand them, how we practice them, and in moments, the the ways and reasons that we break them. Yeah. Um, you know, there are times where, you know, we, uh, we kill life to sustain our own. Sure. Whether that's an animal, whether that's a plant, sure. whether, you know, we have to take life um, to sustain our life. Um, so in a, you know, in that sense, we can never uphold that precept. Exactly. Um, so in what way, how are we acting and how are we being that does take care of that precept? And what are we ignoring or not tending to when we do not live up to it? Um, why? And like, you know, what kind of an agenda do we have? And in in Um, a, in a Western situation, if someone quote unquote sins, breaks one of these things, there's a, there's, there's a sky daddy who will smite you. Right. You know what I mean? There's like this judgmental angle to it in Buddhism. It's, it's, it's almost like not self judgment, but like it's, it's, you're supposed to be aware of your own, uh, tending of the moral code. Is that, is that a bad way to put it? It's definitely a big part of it. Uh, there is, there is karma. Um, that's true. You yeah. know, that, uh, which karma means action. Um, and it's the understanding that we have the consequences of our actions. Uh, you know, we produce karma through our physical acts through what we say, a scorecard is, uh, and well, <laughs> well, that's it's not a, quite see, like that's that. how it feels though um, to to an outsider. That's kind of and 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 but he um, am I putting it poorly? I I, I again I, I I want you to correct me. If, the thing is, I'm it's wrong. not is that it's not fixed and permanent. It's that you know actions words thoughts will have an effect uh so the like my aggregate you know my karma right now is the aggregate effects of you know everything i have ever i have thought uh said and did yeah uh and those things they uh, they will have various effects that influence my life uh, both in like big ways, yeah. you know, like the karma of, you know, I went to grad school or I have a background in theater. Sure. Like, you know, those those have a lot of shape on what I'm interested in, what I do. Right. Um, so it's not that those are destiny, um, but they influence, they, they have 
significant influence on on my life, on how I see the world, on what I choose, on what I'm interested but is there in. A moral... But I can make other choices as well. So in sense, in a sense of uh, the moral sense, yeah. Like, can you observing... make amends for something you've done when you 16 years old? You smash some guy's windshield because you were an idiot kid. Yeah, that's going to go along with you, and maybe you do more positive things through the rest of your life that overcomes. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's, I know it's a very. This is a very. Uh, what I uh, hear Judeo-Christian way of looking at it, like, but which is why I, I have a hard time using language to explain it. Yeah, I hear the sense of like having done a wrong. You know the, you know, how does one or can one make amends for that? Yeah, and uh, in the way I experience this or kind of view it is. So, you know, I, you know, as a, as a kid, I remember sneaking under uh, a fence to a, uh, a farm that was by my parents' house, right. like, it was some buddies, some guys yeah, farm. and yeah. we would, like, you know, kick around and, like, throw vegetables and, like, yeah, yeah, what yeah. have you, like, you know, that's part of my karma, meaning there was, you know, I, you know, I undertook actions, like, in those moments, like, how... It's a question of how do I meet with that right now? Like this was this was a small-ish thing from a long time ago. Right. Exactly. Do I um you know, I reflect on that and I consider that you know, actually I care about, you know, other people's property. Sure. I care about, you know, cutting uh and appreciating, you know, like a bell pepper. You know, how do I appreciate um, the value of food for human beings on this planet? Yeah. Um, you know, in having, so sometimes we can, you know, through doing something like wrong or harmful, like that can be an opportunity to really encounter something about that. Um, you know, this isn't the most serious or like, or grievous of examples, um, but... But oftentimes it's doing something that either doesn't work or creates harm where our attention is actually drawn to that. Right. And we see it, and it actually creates a rich opportunity to make a different choice. You learn from mistakes. Um, yeah, yeah. Right, right. And you, you studied Sanskrit, you said. That's right. Is, is the idea that by reading more, more primary texts, whether they are primary or not, I guess they mm-hmm. are primary, like— you, the older that you're trying to get back to whatever the initial person said actually wrote down. Yeah. That, that you will get deeper understanding that translations are no, not good enough. Is that the idea of learning? Uh, that that's part of it. Um, sometimes, I mean, I, I, I am a translator. I do translate Buddhist text. So I do this kind of work. Um, you know, I enjoy, I love the process, like diving into these texts and really like examining them deeply. I, I find really rewarding. Um, sometimes it only makes things uh, less clear. <laughs> like sometimes it's like, oh, actually, like this is really ambiguous. It right. is more confusing in the original Sanskrit yeah. than it is in the English translation. Yeah, somebody actually um, tried to define it more tightly during their translation. Yeah. Yeah. So with this, I'd I'd really say that it's not one thing, 
Um, and it's going to be different for translators and individual translations. Um, you know, in a lot of, I appreciate a lot of the variety of translations that are out there because they often highlight different facets uh, of a text uh, and take them in different ways. And they're useful tools as a translator uh, to be able to look at all these when I'm going back to a source text yeah. um, to understand it and see and see what do do I see things that they're missing? Right. Uh, what am I seeing that's similar or not? Um, in a different aspect of this, is that in the the Buddhist tradition, like you know, historically, is usually most interested in the teachings of its living teachers, like yeah. living lineage holders. You know, this is especially uh, true in Tibet, uh, in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, this is it's definitely prominent uh, in a lot of Buddhist traditions. Uh, this so very, this kind of coming back. Kind of- process where you learn from your teacher and then you teach the person below you so that there's a sort of direct connection all the way back into time or is it people who have studied a lot and that's how they gained their their knowledge the tradition tends to regard itself as as a lineage and as individual lineages uh so i may never you know i may never be an empowered you know zen buddhist teacher um but I'm studying with my teacher who right. he he studied with uh and was empowered as a teacher by his teacher. Um in our tradition uh would say that you know it traces its lineage back to the historical Buddha. Right. Um you know the lineage you know we chant a lineage uh you know once a week. Um and that's not perfectly historical. Uh yeah, it takes a little yeah. while. There's you know I think there's maybe uh how many maybe 200 names or maybe, maybe not yeah, that much. Yeah, maybe yeah, it's I only guess. 150 or I, I forget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in the history, uh, in verifiable authenticity of all those, uh, one can't trace it, uh, in a kind of perfectly corroborated unbroken way. Sure. Uh, so for me, there's, there is a degree of faith in that. Like, do I feel like I'm encountering authentic yeah. teachings and do I feel like, you know, the person that I'm studying with really, understands this and just to some extent and again it doesn't really does it matter whether there are wrong names on there whatever it doesn't change the way you experience your own reality and the things that people have said the understanding you have of the tradition that's right you know some people get hung up on the accoutrement yes of of all of this yeah you know using exactly the right terminology and and you know oh but that's slightly different than this (laughs) other rare word that no one ever uses that i read in some that you know like that you get people can get lost in minutiae yeah it's got to be similar yeah it's got to be a lot of that in buddhism too and kind of as you've said like i really appreciate you know the lineage and i appreciate like that there are are these people who have undertaken this to take care that, you know, it's around for me to study with a teacher today. Yeah. Um, but it's not like that as a sense of authority isn't what gives me trust in the tradition. Exactly. It's yeah, by yeah, practicing yeah. and actually doing it and seeing what kind of an effect it has on my life and, you know, the yeah. life of those around me that is the biggest factor in verifying for me, like my trust in in the tradition and wanting to continue this as, as my life. Yeah. The, uh, there was a, uh, a thing on a blackboard I saw the other day that said, you know, after all is said and done, a lot more is said than done. 
<laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and I feel like that's a, a lot of life yeah. is too much talking, not enough doing, you know, that, 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 that it's, it's actions that matter, not words, you know? Yeah. Um, They're all important, but we can, it's easy to get away from what really matters. To get lost. Uh, yeah. Or, yeah. Indescription. How do your parents feel about it? Being, uh, be, are they still supportive. serious practicing Catholics? They yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, and you know, I think that they were somewhat. They had some confusion and concern uh, when I started this, and they started noticing, like, oh, he's on retreat again at, you know, at this monastery. Like, um, they don't see you doing the work of the devil or anything but, like that. No, uh, I, uh, I feel like. I observe increased appreciation on their part for um, for how I'm engaging this. I think they really appreciate uh, the sincerity uh, and that I that this is all a lot of care about how I live and take care of other yeah. people. Is, um, is there and a- I've been clear that, like for me, this isn't. Um, this isn't about asserting a non-existence of God, or this isn't about being atheistic or agnostic um you know for me i that would bother them uh to a degree yeah i I think that would that would be uh, yeah harder on them than this that's right yeah um and i'm really interested in it not being that part of it not being a comparison yeah um you know yeah. It's not Buddhism versus Christ. It's not Buddha versus Christ in your brain. Exactly. They're just two guys who had things to say. Yeah. Uh, is there an evangelism angle to it? Do, are, do Buddhists try to create other Buddhists? Some Buddhists do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Where do you come out on that? Um, I come out on that. Like, for example, I will talk about Buddhism when I am asked. You're happy to do this for an hour and 20 minutes. Exactly. If someone wants to talk about it, like, or whatever, you know, whatever that interest is. You and I out to dinner are not going to say, man, can't believe you're reading that. Let me tell you about Buddhism. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, I'm happy to offer it or share what I can to someone who's interested and wants to know. Um, if that, that's a good, that's a good way to, if somebody is interested and just wants to know more and yeah. not, not from a heavily religious point of view, just like wants to understand more of this. Yeah. Is there a particular book or place or thing that you think that they should do? Uh, I think Eugene Gedlin's uh, Foundations of Buddhism okay. uh, is a really great text. Uh, he was in Oxford. Uh, he taught at Oxford for a very long time. Um, you know it's impressive because you called it's it a, a text. nice. <laughs> <laughs> my wife calls me out on my bizarre speech choices uh, all of the time. She's like, "Why can't you just talk normal?" <laughs> it's a book, Michael. It's a book. It's a book. Um, uh, I think that's a really great introduction. Um, there's a lot of. I mean, some of this depends upon a person's interest. Like, yeah. there are so many great books out there, uh, and there's a lot of great Dharma centers that offer great introductions uh, that are happy to, you know, give persons who are there, you know, beginning instruction and in meditation and sure. give them a feel for what it is and what that practice yeah. or center is about, um, and that don't require, you know, any more commitment uh, beyond that. 
Um, I think that the, the meditation thing, I've never clicked with meditation specifically, but for me, exercise ends up taking a very similar kind of place in my brain, like a way for me to disconnect yeah. and get away from reality. And it's all about breath. I mean, it's a very similar kind of uh, mental place, I think, because it is all about just like this repetitive motion. It's about breath. It's, you know, I row on a rowing machine. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, I can close my eyes and just get lost in this sort of place. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, They're not unrelated. Yeah. Uh, I want to, but I'll point out that some of the words you included there were, you know, wanting to disconnect and get away from reality. Well, and there's, true. you know, in some ways that's just about alleviating and getting some space from things that are sure. more difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That, you know, and bringing, you know, exercise is great. Like, you know, I we do it, it, it feels good. I guess in, um, in some ways I mean it more in the sense that you were saying how when you sit down to practice, it makes it easier, it makes your practice easier because you're less distracted. Is that kind of a, a good yeah. way to put it? I feel yeah. like it's that kind of getting away where it's yeah. like there's less input and therefore you can concentrate on trying to notice time passing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's it, the more it, in, in seclusion, you know, is definitely, or having space, you know, distance yeah. is definitely important. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for Buddhist practice, like having times and such for sure. that. And I feel like for you know, most human beings need sometimes where, you know, we're, we have some distance from little, things yeah. that challenge us yeah. um, to be able to do something that helps us then engage those in a better way I think, uh, when I we think, go back to them. I think the world would be a better place. And similar to what you were saying where you said, what was the line you said about, you know, there is the one, but people perceive it differently. What, you know, oh, this is the Vedanta perspective. Uh, truth is one. Sages call it variously or exactly. by many names. I, I think that sages in that thing could be religions or philosophies or people that, that they're, that we'd be better off if, if the different religions of the world could sit down and understand that they have far more in common than they'd have indifference. There's a, I think there's a definite value here. Uh, and it's a great place to meet this kind of commonality of seeing like, aha, we're the same, you know, yeah. you know, there are aspects of, the human experience that are that are yes. the same and we yeah. can um i take great care in not stopping there or letting that be an endpoint that you know we have things that are important and vital similarities and we have things that are important and vital differences yeah. and that we can't uh so here's where it becomes dangerous is ignoring those differences like the contextuality of of each of our lives or um and a lot of this comes down i mean we experience it vividly in the difference uh of lives depending upon our race our gender sure. our sexual orientation like you know um so seeing those differences clearly and understanding them along with our similarities and then and then for me it's about not essentializing not essentially characterizing any one or thing sure like that oh because 
you know, we can have a conversation with someone who we really like, and it's like, oh, they're just like me. I love it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that feels good in a lot of ways, but also it means there's innumerable aspects about that person that you're ignoring and you're not seeing sure. because you're just seeing that you're similarity. You're selectively seeing. Exactly. Sure. So, and we can create harm in the way that we, you know, fixate on similarity or fixate on difference. Sure. Um, and and for me, it's really about seeing about seeing both and letting go of the kind of rigid concepts that kind of uh, restrict us where we we tend to decide that oh no this thing is is exists in this way like and that's it yeah um you know it really uh, the way that we diminish uh, other people or things sure. or what have you yeah um, yeah but I think I, I still come back to the idea that I think we all have more in common than we have in difference. I feel like the human experience has fundamental, not truths. There's like, there's things we all do. You know what I mean? Yeah. We, we all eat, we all sleep, we all fall in love, we all get tired, we all have joy. We, you know what I mean? Like yeah. all of these kinds of things are true no matter where you come from, what you've done, what you've experienced, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that understanding comes from seeing at least a little bit of yourself in others. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like uh, identifying with other people. Yeah. Absolutely. But I, I take your point. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I guess this is a constant struggle for everyone. Yeah. And it's different for each, for a person in a given moment. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, coming back to my, my own endeavor of how I aspire to not singularly categorize, you know, kind of anything really, yeah. you know, any uh, person, object, experience what have you um is that in different moments we may we may need something different yeah you know there are times where we're really not seeing that commonality and that's really what we need and it could be that kind of in a broader uh you know in a global scale especially or in a country scale sure. or however that in this time and place we may need to really emphasize that commonality yeah. uh because there's a lot of divisiveness or yeah. there's you know the ways that we uh you know those people are you know you know they're only they're trying to destroy my life yeah yeah um and in that sense you know, it's, as you're saying, like, it's crucial to broach and see how much we share. Right. Um, uh, but for me, it's very much about looking, uh, looking at the individual circumstance to see what's needed in that moment. Yeah. And why, for me, it's so crucial to see with wisdom and see clearly, you know, what is going on here? What is needed? Yeah. Um, and then, and then just, and then try that and yeah. see, oh, how did that go? Like, yeah. was that helpful? Did that do some good? Yeah. Did I, did I cause any harm? Yeah. What of both was there? Yeah. Um, Back to the evidence-based. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Should have been a scientist. They're not a engineer. Michael, thank you so much for coming over. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks I, for having I, I me. I hope Bill. it wasn't it's too been painful. A real pleasure. Your, was it too painful on your on your side? Was it? Oh, this has been great. Okay, <laughs> thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon.